You succeed as a team and you fail as a leader. Yeah. Now, if you're, if, if you're a manager working with me and, and you're failing, I'm failing you. Yeah. And that's the way it works. They call it omotenashi. Omotenashi. Say that one more time. Omotenashi. Omotenashi. Yeah. Oh, omotenashi. Natural. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, you know, there's many, uh, the, uh, lots of the traditions in Omotenashi, the things you say, the bowing, uh, a lot of it comes from the traditional tea ceremonies. Yeah. But really, it's all founded on the belief that no bit of hospitality is too big or too small yeah. if it improves your guests experience yeah. when you're approaching someone from that empathetic view yeah that's that's the key word right when you when, when you're understanding where they're coming from that almost has equity built into it as default I mean if you really want to understand, I don't know, Bernie. I grew up in a very small country town. I, I, I didn't grow up in the middle of a, of a city. Yeah, and I, I think, think that came I think in. You're on it, mate. You I think it. I've always felt blessed that people would give me their time. Wow. There's equity. You just joined another episode of A Journey with Bernie. And I'm so excited, folks, to have you on board, particularly on this beautiful day here in Japan's capital. Yes, folks, it's not Nepal, it's not Kathmandu, it's not Mara Peak. This time I'm in Tokyo, Japan. And there are many reasons why I'm enjoying this beautiful country and the exceptional hospitality. But Ben O'Born, you are my guest today, and I'm going to let the listeners know very, very shortly as to why you are my special <laughs> guest. But what do you think of this beautiful country? Isn't it sensational? Well, welcome, Bernie, the uh, international man of mystery. <laughs> It's so good to see Don't you. Don't you talk, mate. It, it, <laughs> You've been everywhere. We're going to be investigating that today. A but little, right a now, you're in Japan. What do Absolutely. you think of this lovely country? Well, it's an incredible, incredible place with amazing food, amazing culture, amazing people. Yeah. And uh, it's been an absolute joy to be here the last couple of years. Last couple of years. Yes, so that's you, it. That, mate, that puts you right dead smack in the middle of COVID when you arrived. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually, just before living out of hotels, I got maybe three or four months of Tokyo without COVID. Mate, and that's in a country that literally did shut, its shut, shut itself down up until what? A couple of weeks ago. In a really big way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, mate, once you got in here, you were locked in. Well, look, you know... What a very strange time to be starting a new role in a brand new country. Now, tell me, this role that you're talking, I know about it, but our listeners don't. Why am I talking? Well, I know why I'm talking to you today, but I've got some very, very special reasons, which I'm going to let listeners know about shortly. But you have a very, very special role in this country in a very prominent organization. Yeah, so I'm the chief operating officer for Domino's Pizza Japan. Have been for a couple of years. I've been with the, with the business Domino's. Longer than I haven't in my life, I've worked for Domino's. Well, mate, you know, I've been with Domino's for donkey's years, 20 plus years. When did we first meet? There we are, listeners. I'm letting you know about the association <laughs> now. We met how long ago? Actually, it must have been around 10 years ago, I reckon. Mate, you were a pup. <laughs> I reckon you're ageing backwards now these days, you're fit-looking bugger. I'm trying hard, mate. <laughs> I'm trying hard. So you met, we met 10 years ago. What were you, in your mid-20s? Uh, around there, yeah, I was uh, 25, 24, 25 I would have been then. 24, 25, yeah, yeah. mate, so that makes you 34 now. 35, just 35. turned. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Getting there. I, I should have been aware and kept that year, <laughs> on, year on board. Hey, buddy, um, I'm going to let the listeners now know now why I've chosen you, and you've known that I've wanted to come over here to Japan and do this podcast with you for a long, long Absolutely. time. In fact, around about episode number one, two, or three, I got in touch with you and said, when I come to Japan, we're doing it. Okay? But here's the reason why. Listeners, you're, you're going to hear, I'm not going to even talk about the story of the young man, although the story is important because of the outcome 
I believe it's produced. Now, you, you're going to correct me. That's okay. <laughs> but we're talking to a 34-year-old who's a chief operating officer of a major company like Domino's, a thousand stores in Japan. Almost. Almost Come back to me next thousand. February. Okay. Yeah. So, and it's a growing, evolving business, dear people. But what's amazing is how Ben, at 34, has got the role. And if you listen to his resume and, you know, read all the wonderful things that he's done, the skill of the guy is obvious. But I'm going to say something. Having watched him in action for a decade now, I think it's got very little to do with your skill. I don't find too many of your peers that are capable of connecting with people. I'm going to use a couple of words here and you're going to have to respond <laughs> to them or throw them out the door. Right? Sure, okay. Rarely do I see someone in such a position of leadership that treats the staff that they manage with such equity. Now, when I use the word equity, I think many of your peers, Ben, would perhaps not know fully how to handle that status, that title, that supposed power, and they play roles of dominance. You don't do that, but you've never done that. I've known you for 10 years, and I've got, I've got to find out the secret on how you got there so quickly, so early in your life. <laughs> so that's where we're heading with this, of course, th- this, yeah, sure. this, this podcast. Right? <laughs> What's this podcast about again? <laughs> Mate, you were supposed to learn that before you came. This podcast, Ben, is all about exactly what I'm talking about because connectability with other human beings, a care, a want to listen to other human beings, irrespective of title or status, is what this podcast is all about. Another way of putting it is, it's how do you become a more loving human human being? How do, you, how do you actually create a joy that you express in humanity that also rewards you in your life? And buddy... I'm really confident that at 34 years of age, you lead a pretty meaningful life. Life treats you pretty darn well because you have grown to a a stature Mm. that demands that. Now, I haven't finished yet. (laughs) Connectable. You're a listener. You're inclusive of people. And this is not because it's an easy way to go about it. It's because you, you bugger, you know it works. But my question to you is right up front, and maybe you might have to go back in time here, Mm. how did you become that so quickly, so early in your life? I think you've been blessed to arrive there. How did you get there, Ben? Take us back to childhood. Take mm. us back to the early days. What was the foundation of it all? Well, I grew up in a very, very small little country town of around 1,000 people, uh, around 25, 30 minutes outside of Albury. I want to know the name Albury of it. Albury Jindera. Small little country community. And uh, it was not too far from a bigger town like Albury where I went to high school. But uh, there's lots of really small community uh things going on, the local tennis club and meeting people through that. Um, it was a quaint little town. Yeah. 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 One, one roundabout. And what did um, you do in your, let's go back to primary school. Mm. Who, who were you in your, you know, nought to seven formative years? Well, oh, geez, that's a long time ago now, Bernie. Yeah, 35, mate, it's got to be a couple of highlights. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I, I grew up, you know, uh, my parents split up when I was quite young. I was about five years old. And at the time we were living in Brisbane and then we moved back to Jindera with mum and grew up a lot with mum. And, you know, the thing, my relationship with mum has always been one of, it's almost like a one of friendship where even since I was a young, young kid, she never spoke to me down to me as if I was a child and needed to learn this lesson. It was always as an adult where I could understand the consequences of my actions or, 
you know, there was never any time where there was, where she felt like it was a waste of time to explain something in detail to me when I asked why and why and why and wanted to know more about, about the world. And, you know, we spent a lot of time together when I was, you know, that, that five, six, seven, eight onwards age, sit at home playing cards and just talking, conversating for, for hours on you, end. And what game of cards? Cribbage. Do you I'll know how to play cribbage? Mate, that's... That's for the elderly. I know, yeah. I'm 35, Bernie. <laughs> no, he was my ass. I thought it was going to be 500. That's what, I, that's what I played growing up. So here you are with mum, you're playing mm. cribbage. It's fascinating that, that she, she gave you the why. Did she also foster that in you as well to be inquisitive? I think so, but also, you know, I've also always been really close with my dad as well. And, mm. you know, the conversations I've had with, with my dad on, on the phone from when I was a kid to now today living in Tokyo will go for hours on end. I mean, bottle of red wine and three or four hours on the phone. Even now? Even now, yeah. Wow. And, and they are com- conversations that start in one place catching up, but he's a master of, you know, bringing out a conversation. So yeah. they go down these rabbit warrens, getting right yeah. into depths about politics or ways th- things work in the world. So I think... Uh, both my parents had just these in-depth conversations with me from, from the very, very get-go. It sounds as if they, they fostered an ingredient that, that, that I think is you, based upon my decade, and that is um, an attribute of curiosity. Mm. You know, I've got, I've got mum modelling the why... She's actually encouraging you to be the why. And here's dad talking to you about a whole host of different subjects mm. unashamedly, you know? Absolutely. Is, 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 is that a fair uh, imagination of mine? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And you're really learning the art of conversation as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Are, you, are you, have you brought with you that ingredient of presenting the why and is it part of your style today that you 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 enjoy giving good reason? Go to, I suppose, I don't want to jump away from primary school and those early days too soon, but I want to know how those early days are formative to you now. I think so, Bernie. You know, when working with a team of people, colleagues, really getting people to understand the why explaining that from from the very get-go I mean there's there's some great books of very similar titles of what I just said you know start with why etc I think uh I think it's just the the key to getting people on board with you it's a key to influencing people you know you can't expect people to believe in what you believe or back you into something if you haven't explained why they're doing it their passion towards it won't be there their strive to go after it won't be there and so it's you know, the, the first thing I do with franchisees in the business today, you try and be really transparent, try and talk through the reasoning why, understand from their perspective yeah. as well and explain what it, how it's going to benefit them. Yeah. Um, absolutely core, I think. Yeah. Without the why, it's just a statement. It, it, it's just a directive, isn't it? it it's um, – uh, but the why – gives them reason to believe. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is yeah it, is, where you go? There's a, there's a, great, uh, a, a great story about two stonemasons. Tell do me you, about it. Do you it. know the story about the two stonemasons? No, so I'm about to hear it. You walk up to the, the first stonemason and he's, he's oh. building, building a wall, brick after brick, and the hot sun bearing down on him, sweating profusely. It's hard, long work. And you ask him, you know, do you like your job? And he says, no, it's backbreaking work. I'm here for 12 hours a day. I don't even know what I'm building. I don't, I, no idea. And it's, I, I go home tired. I don't see my family. It's dreadful, dreadful work. And you go to the second guy who's also building the same wall, laying the, laying the bricks. Do you like your job? And he says, you know, it's really hard work. It's backbreaking work. It's hot. It's in the sun. It's sweaty. I don't know if I'm going to get to see this wall finished, but it'll be finished one day and I'm building a cathedral. Wow. 
Wow. This will stand for thousands of years after, after I've built this. Yeah. So you, your point of the story is, is that the why also creates purpose. Well, why is purpose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And would you say that honestly that is something that is one part of your management practice now almost instinctively and you actually believe that it was founded by the way that you were parented? I believe so. You know, you, you have to start in that position yeah. it, from, from, that, from that place because, I mean, unless you want to walk through your life leading a team and micromanaging every single thing they do because yeah. you, you give them a directive. Well, yeah. you've got to line up the next directive and the next directive. If you want them to think and engage, you, know, you want to utilize their abilities and, and their, you know, what they can achieve and get the most out of them. Well, give them that purpose. Let them run with it. Let them achieve. Let me say something that may sound a little bit out of place, but I'm aware that you've been recently married. Mm. Now, now, that's another story, okay? <laughs> and wow, <laughs> listeners, it is a story yet to come. But even in marriage, for example, do you find that conversations with Cassia also demand at times that you deliver the why, you, you know, r- rather than me making statements to each other? Do you find that even in the context of a treasured relationship, that the why is also important? Well, of course, because, <laughs> you know, uh, it's a given. I mean, yeah. you, you have to it, – it's any conversation, Bernie. It's, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, um, it, it's something, therefore, that, that, that is a real benefit if it becomes a standard behaviour mm. as opposed to someone – who's just directing, making statements, asking people to believe but not giving them the reason why. Mm. Does it build trust? Well, of course, because then people feel like they're part of the solution. If they're yeah. understanding why and you're letting them the, the freedom to actually engage with that purpose and actually uh, push towards an outcome, then of course it builds trust because yeah. they feel part of the solution. I've spoken to you before about some of your management practices and I know that the building of trust with you is key. Mm. Could you comment on on that, please? And not only how important is, that's a little bit of a duh, right? But ways and means of building trust. You've, you've mentioned the why, mm. giving the reason is important. Are, are there other mechanisms that you use in all aspects of your life to build trust? I think trust starts from empathy and transparency. I like that. Because if you can sit there and have a conversation with someone and look at whatever is in front of you on the table through their eyes and, and really understand where they're coming from with something, that's a, that's a great foundation. Yeah for yeah, trust yeah. right there. But then the flip side of that is you've got to be very transparent back with them yeah. and share where you're coming from with things. And sometimes the situations where you can't share every piece of information, that's, that's a reality. Yeah. But you always share as, as much as you possibly can. Yeah. And, and that's where you can come to an understanding. Now, an understanding doesn't mean agreement. Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. You know, sometimes you've got to have tough conversations. Sometimes sometimes you need to leave a situation and go, well, we don't agree, but we understand each other. Yeah. And that's perfectly fine. Yeah. Having that relationship and, and that respect for someone's opinion and the way they see things and their history, where they're coming from is, I think, the backbone to trust. Mate, you're mentioning so many things. I don't know whether you're listening to yourself, but I am, <laughs> right? You, t- you, you mentioned the word respect in there. You've mentioned the word transparency. You've mentioned the word um, like, or, or referred to an openness. Um, you've, you've mentioned tough love in there without exactly that phrase, mm. but having the tough conversations. You know, there's so many different elements in there. Let's, go, let's not lose mum and dad. Sure. And, and primary school and yeah. growing up. Yeah. Respect for people. Um, 
did that just come out of a 1500 town called, you know, Jindabeen? Um, <laughs> what did you do, uh, you know, growing up in your life? What people were in your life? Through what dimensions and avenues did people come into your life mm. that taught you to respect the, the, the varied types of people mm. that are in our communities? I played a lot of sport, played a lot of uh, field hockey when I was younger. Yeah. Um, used to play around a lot of bands uh throughout the years right. uh which was which was great fun and certainly met some some interesting characters through doing that um you know it was always i had a, a tight-knit group of sort of five or six very very good friends yeah. uh secondary school uh, so my best mate since you know, five years old at, at primary school, also from Jindera. <laughs> Were they part of the hockey team? No, 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 no. Well, at no, the no, moment, no. mate, I've got you He'd playing in the three clubs at Jindabeen. <laughs> I'm sure you're a, a, you know, a much bigger hockey player than that. Give us your hockey uh, resume. Well, I played uh, a lot of sort of junior representative hockey and okay. then played state representative hockey. Um, Four? For well, first for Aubrey Wodonga and then for Victoria. That's Victoria. Okay, um, yeah, yeah. For Victoria State team growing up, and that was a lot of commitment. I think, uh, you know, there's a lot of travelling from uh, Jindera to Melbourne and back a couple of times a week, which is three and a half hours each way uh, for training sessions, practice matches, etc. Um, and then a little bit later on, when I was about 17, started playing for the state league wow. competition. Um, Explain state league. Well, it was sort of the Aubrey seniors team playing against the, the rest of Victoria. Like so a Geelong? Geelong. Mel- St. Kilda? Geelong were never in the, in the first division. <laughs> Fortunately. Geelong, Geelong, um, <laughs> Geelong think they're first and everything. They might be now. I might be, I might be sorely mistaken. It's been a while. But uh, yeah, so all teams around Melbourne go down there once, once a week and, yeah. and play bus down there with all the, uh, all the lads and then, uh, and then bus back that night. Um, so a lot of that. And then, you know, I sort of lost a little bit. I, I moved down to Geelong for, for university. Right, okay. And, uh, yeah, I realised that. What I, did you study? I did a double degree, so I did an arts degree and really focused in, majored in sociology. Okay. Um, a little bit of a, bit of a minor in philosophy. And then a commerce degree and majored in economics. I've got to ask the question, because mm. this is interesting for me. What makes a young man choose sociology and, and philosophy? Like, like, what fostered that? Well, sociology always really interested me because interested me, I loved the idea. I loved economics as well. And I, I, elements of sociology were almost this behavioral economics of people yeah. on, a, on a very large scale. And I found that very, very interesting. Yeah. Um, the economic side I was always interested in. Uh, and then... You know, philosophy just, I, I think you can learn so much from reading and understanding these ideas. It's, it's almost a bit of a crossover between fiction and nonfiction, yeah. some of the philosophy you read, because a lot of it is fiction and in stories, but it's dealing with humanity and, and things that are nonfiction and the way that we interact, the way that you can think about, ways that you can think about the world. Here's a funny question. Like, like are you already at such a tender age trying to, you know, like answer the question, why the heck are we here? Um, um, you know, what's the purpose of our existence? And, and with some form of that question floating around, does that inspire a young man to want to look at sociology and how, how decisions and the way that society works reflects its attitudes towards each other. Um, Are you you looking at philosophy because you want answers? You know, I never really thought about it, Bertie. It was just (laughs) interesting to me at the time, but now sitting here thinking about it, I I think... I'm thinking about it for you, mate. I think what still interests me about it today is probably what was interesting to me back then was less looking for an answer or a reason, but really wanting to understand people and, and loving, loving to get, get little glimpses inside, inside of yeah. how people make certain decisions, yeah. why people act in certain ways. Yeah. And that leads into economics as well, certainly leads into, into sociology and behavioural economics. Yeah, oh, see, I, 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 find, I find this a little interesting discussion and, and I'm going to make it personal here. Right? <laughs> 
I, if people ask me about my childhood and mm. my secondary school, I can't explain why if I got an assignment, it was on Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, Martin Luther King. I was just fascinated by what made people, not just them, but the process of, 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 of finding meaning. I was always mm. a curious bugger. Mm. Oh, you can does see that ring it, a bell now? <laughs> certainly rings a bell for the Bernie, I know. Um, but is that, no, no, it does. Yeah, and not necessarily amazing people either. Yeah, but just why does a certain group of people do certain things? Yeah. You know, you, you could be looking at a, a group that might be marginalised in society. Yeah, yeah well, what's what's led to that? Because it's not just someone's born like that. What's, yeah. What social pressures are causing that to happen? That yeah. really, really interested interested me. Yeah. But then, you know, understanding the way people think about, you know, the the question of, you know, why are we here and, yeah. and understanding reading from different perspectives through philosophy of around that was really, really interesting to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering why it might be. Mm. It's not an accusation. <laughs> why it might be innate for some and yet for others – the question actually is too difficult to even consider an answer. What question am I talking about? Why the heck am I uh, here? You know, what brings meaning to life? And I'm sure everybody looks at the stars and goes one night, ah, oh, why am I here? You know? <laughs> I'm sure everybody's been asked the question. Mm. But some want to answer it. Some mm. want to find an answer to it. And, and others hear the question but God, oh, too hard, you know, won't, won't <laughs> go there. And I just, I just find, I find that, that fascinating. Hey, go back. You're playing, you're not just playing hockey, but you're playing with a lot of teams. You're playing, mm. you're playing in Albury. You're playing in State League. You're playing against a, uh, the Metro guys. You're playing against the, you know, a lot of good rural country teams that are all part of the State League. You're getting selected for um, Victoria and you're playing in, yeah, national competitions, perhaps an even international flavour here and there. But coupled with that, did I hear you say you're also part of a rock band? I think back in those days, it was probably, uh, there's a few metal bands, a couple of <laughs> punk bands, but then later on, we actually... Uh, you look like a punk, huh? <laughs> <laughs> with a receding hairline, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, a lot of rock music, a lot of, uh, a lot of blues influence music as well. I love the blues and, uh, and certainly later, um, yeah, more towards the rock side of things when I was living in, in Geelong and Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Playing gigs around the place, yeah. But mate, there are some different characters. I, I, I haven't got the same characters that you're meeting in nighttime gigs <laughs> as you're playing against in the in the, in the hockey. Bring it to life for us. Um, give us a story about you know uh, some of those rock punk heavy metal <laughs> dudes well, that came into your life you know it's not so uh, as nefarious as you would think to yeah. be honest like yeah. uh but what it is is a a wonderful community of people from all different walks of of life who are coming together to do something they love something a little bit artistic something that where you're creating something with your friends yeah writing music together um coming together at the pub for a beer to enjoy that collectively. Yeah. And the sense of camaraderie is just incredible. Yeah. yeah. I could go through and tell you some stories about, you know, some, some big nights we had, but I don't yeah. think there's a lot of value in yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Um, what, what about the, what about relating to an audience? Mm. God, that, cause, cause your audience is full of the many and the varied. Mm. Yeah. More the varied, not so much the many, unfortunately. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Relating to them, mm. that must have taught you a lot. Look, a little, I think, sure, when you play some, some live gigs, you know, writing music, it's, I think, important to write music that you really love. Yeah. Uh, not that, write music for, for, for other people, but certainly you think about how to, put on a show and, yeah. and, you know, talking to people after the gig and making sure you're staying back and making those connections with people. Yeah. And, um, you know, so many great friends that have came out of that uh, still to this day that, you know, might have played in other bands, might not have, but, 
you just afterwards took, you meet someone who's a lover of might be one band you might have in common that you that you love and you're talking after a gig somewhere yeah. having a beer yeah and you might talk for an hour and a half two hours you might you mightn't ever see that person again yeah yeah or they might become one of your best friends yeah yeah how would you have coped if I'd been in the audience you'd met me mate we'd be talking about the Bee Gees <laughs> <laughs> I think I would have lost you after two minutes. No, come on, Bernie. I, 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 I would have taken it as a project. <laughs> well, even that's interesting. Because, I know you said it jokingly, but isn't that a great exercise to do, to come across people whose interests are so adverse to your own and yet it's like a, a project to to learn how to be interested and to foster learnings from that person even though yeah, yeah, yeah. their interests are so so you must have been in that situation a number of times well of course but you know just because you personally don't like some music just means that music just wasn't made for you so yeah. understanding why someone else likes that music yeah. or likes whatever it might be yeah. that they're into uh is still a worthy exercise yeah what did ben o'born learn you know, what age are you by the time you're finishing mu- your, your musical rock band status? <laughs> uh, well, was, I had to break up the band or I had to leave the band. The, the boys are still playing in a, under a different guise. But yeah. uh, when I moved from Melbourne to Perth for, yeah. for a, uh, a promotion a job with, uh, with Domino's, so oh, that, okay. was, that would have been 2014. Okay, so what age are you then? Just uh, I would have been 27. 27, mm. okay. So up until your mid-20s, what was the value to, to you in your life of, of meeting such a wide variety of people? And we've got to bear in mind you're also being founded by, by good people in your life who have taught you to be inquisitive and curious. Mm. So I'm imagining you're actually bringing that perhaps even unconsciously to the way that you interact with this variety of people. But what's been the benefit to you as a human being from having that lifestyle with such a variable group of people? Well, I guess you learn from that that you can come from very different places, but all you've got to do is find one common thing to connect. Yeah. And it's very easy to find one common thing to connect with yeah. anybody. Yeah. And you, you get great practice at that, right? Yeah. You meet so many, so many people um, and you've got the time then because it's enjoyable time on yeah. the weekend or whatever. Yeah. Usually late at night um, yeah. to, uh, to sit and, and, uh, and connect with all these different people from all different sorts of walks of life and understand. Mm. But respond to this, please, pal. You don't do that unless you also see some equity in, with that person. And by the word equity, I mean, there you are, the lead singer. Like if someone wants to take your time after the event, you're the lead singer, mate. You know, you, you've got, you haven't got the right, but there are, I reckon there'd be a few that would say, oh, thanks very much, thanks for your interest. I, you know, got to go now, see you later, you know. But I got this image of you not only back then, but I also know how you manage people. Um, you, you learn so much, but only if there is within you a feeling of equity. That's a statement. Could you respond to that? Yeah, I, th- I think I understand where you're coming from. I mean, when you're approaching someone from that empathetic view, yeah, that's, that's the key word. You know? Right. When, you, when, when you're understanding where they're coming from, that almost has equity built into yeah. it as default. I mean, if you really want to understand, I don't know, Bernie. I grew up in a very small country town. I, I, I didn't grow up in the middle of a, of a city. Yeah, and I, I think, think that came in. I think you're in, on it, mate. You're I think I've, I've, always, I've always felt blessed that people would give me their time. Wow. There's equity. You know, like like Bernie Kelly reaching out to do a podcast. I'm like, what the bloody hell does Bernie, Bernie want to talk to me for? Because of exactly <laughs> what you just said. Yeah. That's, you know, because of exactly what you just said. Mm. I mean, talk about an egoless statement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yet the egoless 
the empathetic one is the one that's in charge of, dare I say, ripples out to tens of thousands, mm. maybe even more people, through the chief operating officer of of Domino's Pizza here in Japan. Mm. How many people are in Japan? What's the population of Japan? 130 million. 130 yeah. million. <laughs> well, you know, multiply Australia by five <laughs> and we go and we start to get somewhere in the vicinity. Mm. Right? And while I'm not saying that you're tapping into 130 mil, I'm saying the scope of, of the amount of people that you ripple to is huge, Ben. Mm. And I, right from the start, I've been fascinated as to what is the foundation. And I reckon you just nailed it. Well, for me, I've got the little goosebump here because you just, you just said – You've always been interested in why people might be keen to learn from you. Mm. It, it talk, what have I got? Humility. I've got, I've got a- empathy. I've got equity. Are these the ingredients that actually make a great leader, a great manager? How do those ingredients foster such goodness, greatness and effectiveness? Mm. Well, I've thought for a number of years now that leadership is not the position. It's crazy to think so. You, just because you're placed into a position somewhere doesn't mean that you suddenly deserve, you're deserving of some respect. Yeah. You're deserving of, you know, the people following your every word. You earn that yeah. with people. Yeah. And sometimes leadership isn't a position. Yeah. Sometimes a great leader can be someone who's lifting up people who's standing right next to them. Wow, mate. Um, so I, I, I don't see leadership in that way, and I, and I, I couldn't. I, I would feel like an absolute, you know, prat, I guess, uh, if, if, I, if I walked into a room and said, well, this is the way it is because I say it is. No, it's, it's not the way it works because it comes back to things we were talking about earlier. I mean, if you want to get people the best out of people, you, you can't do that by being a despot. Yeah. You want to get yeah. the best out of people. You've, you've got to motivate them to be all in for the cause. And the yeah. only way to do that is, is to sit and get them to understand why that cause yeah. is important. Yeah. This is, um, what have I got? Empathy. I've got, I got a joy or a want to listen. Um, Oh, wow, thank you for your interest in me. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I've got all these ingredients. Does that bring you a lot of happiness? (laughs) Does it bring you a lot of joy in your life? I think so. You know, connecting with people is is joy. Uh, And, you know, getting to that point of understanding with someone, whether they, they might be in your team, but then whether they just click and they get it. Yeah. Right. And they're chasing after as hard as they can yeah. with you. Or, you know, working a lot with franchisees as as our you know, business partners and yeah. get that level of understanding with someone yeah. is it's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. And and you know, the trust comes from there and yeah. you know if you can sit there and, and have that trust with someone, that, yeah. that level of understanding yeah. where they know that you've got their best interest at heart. Yeah. And they feel that you're wanting them to succeed. Yeah. You're there for their success. Yeah. Then they'll follow you through hell and back. Yeah. If you're a dictator. Yeah. If you're a, a despot who walks, the person that walks in the room and says, this is how we do it. This is why we do it. And I don't yeah. want you to think about it, but you're going to go do it. Yeah. The people will be out the door as soon as, as soon as things get tough. Mm. But it doesn't mean that you don't deliver tough love. No, of course. You, yeah. you have to, yeah. But, but, you know, when you've built that level of trust, the tough love has so much more meaning. Yeah. yeah. It really does. Yeah. You know. But I think with you, Ben, when you deliver tough love, they still know it's love. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, it, and it should be. You know, I, I really believe that you've, you, you, you succeed as a team. Yeah. Right? So you, if you're leading a team, it's the team that succeeds. Yeah. And the accolades and, and the celebration, the joy go to the team. Yeah. But you fail as a leader. Yeah. 
the failure is on the leader and and that comes back to well maybe maybe you recruited the wrong person that can happen yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe you didn't deliver the right coaching, training, motivation, set the right goals, but it's back on you as a leader. We spoke about joy before. You've had a, you've had a, a joyous, well, you were supposed to have, I'm sure it has been a joyous <laughs> couple of years because you got married to the lovely Cassia. Yes. Have I pronounced that right? Kasia. Kasia. Oh, apologies, Kasia. She forgive you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a couple of years ago, but I think we alluded earlier on in the podcast that that started at a very your wedding came at a very very interesting mm-hmm. time hey give us the dot point story because it's a ripper folks <laughs> it was a very interesting time i mean it was uh, the beginning of february 2020 COVID, just before yeah. the the world sort of imploded on itself a little bit yeah and uh yeah, we got married and and then i was coming back to tokyo i'd be living in and out of hotels in tokyo then going back to Brisbane we were living in at the time. Had you just started here? Yeah, I'd started here in the uh, in the October beforehand. Okay, I'd been, okay. Um, yeah, so I've been living here for two years, but I've been working yeah, yeah. At this, for this business for three. Um, but flying back and forth and then I was, yeah, we got married and then spent five days together on a, on a short little beach break before <laughs> I... Uh, Flew back, left her at, uh, left Kasha at uh, KL Airport and flew back to Tokyo. KL. She went, where's KL? Kuala Lumpur, oh, Malaysia. Kuala Lumpur. Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, she flew back to Brisbane and then, you know, about a month later, <laughs> we had five happy married days together. Yeah. Uh, a month later, I flew back to Brisbane to uh, to pack all of our stuff up and put it in a shipping container and, you know, do the final move over to Tokyo. But... Uh, my flight was probably the first flight back into Brisbane, at least, yeah. uh, that had to self-quarantine. So that sort of pushed our moving date back a little bit. I had to... 14 days? I think it was... It might have been 10 back then. Wow. Too much has changed since right. then. Right, yeah. Um, but so observe that, sat at home for, for 10 days. It was probably a bit of a blessing because I got to go through and start packing boxes and whatever <laughs> before, before leaving. <laughs> Uh, the day finally comes, I can leave quarantine, the removalists come, pack everything up and um, we went and stayed a, a, a night in a hotel that night. I was I was staying in the hotel for three days to wrap up some some work at our Brisbane office before you know, the final big move to Tokyo. Um, Kasha stayed one night and she left to Perth uh, okay. that next day to go see her parents for two weeks. I okay. live over there. Uh, before she was going to also join me in uh, in Tokyo, but I wake up. You know, she leaves in a taxi to the airport, takes off, and then that day, while she's in the air, no, Tokyo closed their borders. Yeah, and Perth closes their borders to the rest of Australia. So she's so, in the air, mm. about to land in Perth with borders closed. Yes, and you're supposed to be. Meeting her in Tokyo later on. Yeah, in a couple of weeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I'm in I'm in Brisbane with uh, my suitcase, uh, a car that thankfully I hadn't been able to sell yet because the, the the market had, I was just going to sell it off whatever I could on the way to the airport. Um, and thought, what, what do I do now? Yeah. <laughs> I can't go to Perth. I can't yeah. go to Tokyo. Mum, I drove 15 hours down to Mum's place and lived down there for six months. Six um, months. Mm, wow. uh, yeah, six, uh, six yeah. months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Cassie's locked in Perth. In Perth, yeah, we couldn't <laughs> see each other. It was a, it was a great first, uh, first, I guess, eleven, nine months of marriage. The first nine months of marriage, I think we probably spent around, geez, I don't know, three weeks together. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, don't you give me the country excuse like you gave me before. Right? <laughs> I want you to dig deep on this one. Mm. I would imagine you've just got married. I, I, you know, that's treasured love. Mm. Yeah, yeah. The, most, the happiest day of your life, right? Well, y- yes. You're walking you out with friends and family there. It's a, you know, certainly. I hope so. so wonderful celebrations. Mm. And, and then there is an eagerness and there's a look forward to the, the starting and mm. the launch of your marriage. Now, I'm imagining that at the end of nine months, 
the the emotion of having to deal with this space between us and the imposition that COVID is is placing upon you both is perhaps different at the seven, eight, nine months than it is at the start. Go back to at the start. What were your Describe the well. Don't describe the frustrations, but just what were you learning about that from that situation and that circumstance? What were you learning about the preciousness of love? What were you learning about love as a result of this frustration that this pandemic that's come out of nowhere has placed upon you? Yeah, well, between the both of us, there was a lot of. I wouldn't say not fear, but certainly a lot of um, yeah, not knowing when were we were going to take this big step we'd looked forward to. When were, when were we going to be connected again? It was, yeah. it was a it was a fear of that, but through that we had a connection uh, through that as well. Where whilst the world was and for us as as a, as um, partners was was not um, feeling like it was being friendly. Yeah. Um, it was almost a, a love growing through this uh, this animosity to to the situation we were in together. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And uh, animosity is maybe a, a tough word, but you yeah, know, it was a, it was a moment for many people in the world that was full of um, doubt and yeah, and uh, not knowing what was around the corner. Um, so, look, staying connected in that time was was really important, but. Talking through that time about whenever it was going to come, and we knew it would come eventually. Yeah. But talking about the things and the new experience we had around the corner, when that door did open, when those gates opened, when when the flights were bookable again, we had this whole experience, this whole new culture, this whole new part of our lives as husband and wife to live in yeah. a brand new country to, uh, to go and explore. So yeah. I think not consciously, but the way we dealt with that was, was through this level of excitement and this building this, uh, excitement for experience that we're about to go, go do together. Yeah. Yeah. And- Are you saying that the doubt and the uncertainty that was created by the COVID scenario actually became to some degree a catalyst for intensifying your love? I think so. It, it was, you know, look, I'm, I'm sure that you, the, the first six months of marriage, nine months of marriage, year of marriage being side by side with each other would be a, You'd hope it's an incredible, anyway. yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> but certainly being so far apart, um, yeah. Yeah, this level of excitement certainly yeah. kept us very close together. And and it meant that once we, we hit the deck in, in Japan, uh, full steam of blazing, you know, working very hard, but also just trying to see as much, do as much, walk as much, eat as much, understand as much about the culture. Right. Um, and it certainly made, that's carried on till today. And we've, you know, yeah. Kasha's been living here almost two years now. And yeah. it certainly made our... our Love for exploring this country, yeah. Um, I guess has carried through that whole time, yeah. Yeah, but what's interesting about all that description that you just gave in the last minute? It, it, it's it's all about shared experiences. Mm. It's almost as if the whole COVID scenario prepared you to launch yourselves into a whole series and range of different shared yeah absolutely experiences. Yeah. That's what it felt like, anyway. Benefit, yeah. benefit, please of of thirsting, actualizing those shared experiences. Mm. And the, the reason why I'm asking the question is because I'm also wondering about, you know, couples who are in situations and scenarios where they've actually lost touch with the importance and the mm. power of the shared experience. Mm. Um, what's the value of the shared experience? Tell us, share it with us. What does the shared experience look like on a weekend in Tokyo now? What's it look like in the in recent months? Mm. You know, for you and Cassia, how does what do you do mm. to that, that that define shared experiences? Well, firstly, I think they're very important because when you're learning things together and you're understanding more about the world together, what a bond that you build. Yeah. 
But, uh, you know, for us, every weekend, uh, if it's not raining, we'll go for a big, long 30-kilometer walk to through neighborhoods to a location somewhere in the wow. outer suburbs of, of Tokyo where we haven't been before. Yeah. You see so many different things that you don't see if you're in a taxi or if you're on, yeah. on the subway. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of travel around the country as well. A couple of weekends ago, we were in Kyoto. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was wonderful experiences there. Some Japanese cooking classes. Some um, we stayed at a really traditional ryokan uh, hotel. Um, lots of temple visits and, yeah. and hiking. Um, yeah, it's it's such a different country. It's yeah. a, it's a culture that was yeah. that was isolated from the rest of the world for so long that there's yeah. just so much to see. And and look, to be honest, yeah, you you begin to develop these understandings of things together, but there's still so much more to learn and learn about yeah. together because it is a complex yeah. culture that's so different from a lot of the West. Yeah. So, you know, I look forward to just more and more of that. It's yeah. yeah. Wonderful, mate. Wonderful. Can I share with you? I, I, I get fascinated by the Japanese hospitality mm. culture. You're, you're in an industry that can tap into, even utilise that hospitality. Um, could you describe some of the ingredients of that hospitality for our listeners that makes Japanese service so extraordinary? Mm. Well, they call it omotenashi. omotenashi. Say that one more time. Omotenashi. Omotenashi. Yeah. Omotenashi. Natural. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and, and, you know, there's many uh, things, uh, lots of the traditions in Omotenashi, the things you say, the bowing, uh, a lot of it comes from the traditional tea ceremonies. Yeah. But really it's all founded on the belief that no bit of hospitality is too big or too small yeah. if it improves your guest's experience. Yeah. So it's small things like Offering you the little oshibori, the little towel at your yeah, at your table. Had that before. Yeah. In winter, it's nice and warm. Yeah. In summer, it's nice and iced and cold. Right. It's everywhere. There's, there's little, but there's little little details. <laughs> it's you know rushing to open the door for you. Yeah. It's a wonderful greeting, thanking you for for uh, for yeah. joining. Um, it's all those little things add, added up into that one sort of philosophy that no thing is too small or too big as long as it improves the customer's overall experience. I reckon I've been to a few of those little backstreet little restaurants. There's a, they can only fit in 12 people. Mm, mm. And I don't even get to open the, the really big wooden door <laughs> when I can see through the one window this 20-year-old young woman mm. rushing to the door and I'm sure it's not because she thinks I'm elderly. Right? <laughs> Maybe it is. But she's... Opening this heavy door just to greet me. Yeah. Like, it's, I guess the only country in the world. It's pretty incredible. And considering it's not a tipping culture, in fact, yeah. it would be seen, it's often spoken about, you know, it's it's almost seen rude to tip because you're reducing them from the job they're doing. You know, they're yeah. very proud of that job. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ben, I've been here three days mm. and I have been here before. Um, even with your great company, mm. um, and and even in three days, my speech and my behaviour is modified mm. when I go to Robert's Cafe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I when I go to a place for lunch, just because of the respect that I want to give back to them mm. because of what they give me. Mm. And to be honest, I actually feel a softer, more beautiful person as a result of that slightest shift mm, mm. <laughs> that they draw out of me because of the vulnerability, inverted commas, yeah. that they give me. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful um, experience. But I think we're talking about things that you... You know, in fact, interesting, as we head towards winding this up, Ben, it, it's interesting for me that I'm not quite sure you do know how 
those ingredients, those the essence of you that has created this young man at 34 years of age, that's you, into one that is so connectable, sees people with such equity, is empathetic towards people, loves to see them succeed, extracts joy out of their success. I think part of your secret is that you are not fully aware (laughs) (laughs) of the foundational ingredients. That's why this conversation for me, and I'm certain for our listeners, Mm. is, is... is going to is going to resonate. It just feels right, though, doesn't it, to talk to people in that way? Say it, that one more time. It feels right to engage people. Look, that's how you see the joy on your team's face. Yeah, when you've achieved something together, when they've been engaged with it. I think it feels right because it, I often say this, Ben, and God bless her beautiful soul. Maybe even Mother Teresa had an ounce of selfishness. <laughs> and what I mean by that is, you know, her love for people was also founded in that it brought her great meaning mm. and joy. And how dare I say that is selfish. I don't really mean that. <laughs> but in a way, there's always a reward and maybe we become so acutely aware of the reward of the joy and happiness it brings to us that ultimately we say, it just feels right, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Could be, mate. We're just, yeah. we're just we're playing with our, our thoughts and our interpretation <laughs> here. Finish it off, mate. Um, oh, big question. Just got to ask it. You know... You sense there is a difference without acting as if you have difference with some of your peers, a lot of your peers. Mm. If you had to identify three values that you believe define Ben O'Born that maybe others don't have to the same degree, and I purposely phrase it that way because... I think if I ask someone what their values are, I think in reality you've got a hundred values. But if we're talking about the primaries, we're talking about the big ones, the ones that really dominate your essence, are there two or three that you just know define you? Mm. What are they, mate? I have to say... We've spoken about it a lot, but choose empathy. Choose Choose to be empathetic. You know, there's no better way to connect with someone. Therefore, there's no better way to influence someone. There's no better way to motivate someone than if you can see the world through their eyes and share transparently from yourself the view from your eyes and come to an understanding of that. So choose empathy. I'm sorry. May I throw in to that? Does that mean... In a way, it, that empathy is founded in an innate want to love people, want to connect with people. That is the way that you do connect with people. Yeah. Absolutely, it's you know that's that's what brings uh, joy to life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. If if there if there's one thing that brings the most joy to life, it's connecting with people, with friends, yeah. new people. Your you know for me, Kasha, um, yeah. And that's, that's the, the backbone of that. You're hearing it, folks. You're hearing it, folks. <laughs> Number two, Ben. Number two. Jeez. All right. No country town excuses now. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I, I really stand by, and, and when I'm talking with managers in my team who manage other people, I always will pull them up. Something I said earlier, but always will pull them up. And I start hearing words like, oh, yeah, my, my team this, or oh, these guys, I just can't get them to. No, sorry. Yeah. You succeed as a team and you fail as a leader. Yeah. Now, if you're, if, if you're a manager working with me and, and you're failing, I'm failing you. Yeah. And that's the way it works. So succeed as a team, but you fail as a leader. You've got to take that ownership. Yeah. over it. That's the only way that you can, you can push forward. You know, there's sure there's certain things in the world that you can't change. You got to focus on the ones that you can. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, and I, yeah, that's one of the most frustrating conversations that I have with uh, with people yeah, uh, yeah. when when they when and it, it might might be someone I work with, it might be a friend who's having troubles at yeah. work. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. your <laughs> they're your people. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah. So leaders take full responsibility for the outcome that your team is producing. If there is failings amidst them, then maybe you haven't built the environment for them to succeed. Almost, but the failure is on you and you've got to take ownership of that because you're the only one that's going to turn that around. Yeah. Yeah. Regardless of the situation. Get you, mate. The successes belong to the team, which you are part of. Yeah. 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 Love it. Love it. Sorry, mate. Number three. Number three. For, and this is what I see in the greatest people and, and, and try to live by is you always challenge the status quo. It's the greatest people I always find question the way things are done around here. Yeah. But they do so positively. There's never any malice or negativity. And they do so with great respect of the past. Yeah. And great respect with of the experience of those that they're yeah. talking to. Yeah. The only way things get better is when the way things are done are challenged. Yeah. But you can get off on the wrong foot with people if you don't approach that in the right way. You right don't manner. do it in the right way. Yeah. yeah. But again, I'm I the only reason why I come back and I, I offer another word is mm. is not to trump you at all. It's because I want our listeners to fully understand the the guts of what you're 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 saying. To challenge is also part of your whole perspective of curiosity. Mm. You know, why should we just accept that? Why don't we challenge that? I don't see. I don't see that that still exists today. Mm. Let's be curious about. It. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You give it a grand understanding for where it's come from, but yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Well, mate, I'm out of place with what I'm about to say because here's my. Expectation. No, that's too much. I can't put that that on a thirty-five year old. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I won't be surprised with the ingredients that define you. And I think the major ingredient is is there's there's a humility. Um, there is. Oh, I love. I the, the highlight for me out of this discussion was when you said, oh, Bernie, I'm just a country lad. <laughs> and I just hope people will be interested in me. Uh, that to me was my highlight because there lies a definition of, of humility. But out of, out of that statement of yourself comes a young man who at 35 years of age can have a ripple effect on hundreds of thousands of people. Um, maybe partly because you're in a country where there's 140 million, <laughs> but also because you're, you, you, you've quickly been seen. All these attributes are so worthy and valuable. I don't even know whether the, those, those who have, have given you these roles actually recognise just how powerful and how valued they just know that it is. They sense that it is. And that's why I suspect um, you have been accelerated. And, buddy, I, I just can't see how those ingredients are ever going to holds you back from other greater opportunities. I look at your face now, I think you half expect it. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say that, Bertie. <laughs> well, I think you just know that they, um, they harness great value. And already in Japan, I, I know in your company that you have already stimulated and inspired great value. Mate, the podcast, this discussion was everything that I expected and wanted it to be. I thank you ever so much for Love joining us, mate. It's and for always... all that you've given our listeners out there. And, mate, and for being a part of, join me, mate, a, a 
Journey, Journey with Bernie. Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, loved it. Thank you so much. It's always such a pleasure. Cheers, folks. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Well, I do hope you enjoyed today's episode of A Journey with Bernie. Folks, I loved it. Contact and connection details of today's podcast guest and any references to resource materials, books or educational sources, they can all be found in the podcast notes. Do go there, folks. And also be aware that our guests would welcome hearing from you. Now, for those of you who have previously rung me about joining our forthcoming adventures to Nepal and those glorious Himalayan trekking trails, either this October or in April of 2023, it's great to to have you on board. I am so thrilled. Can you imagine it? You and I walking to Everest Base Camp together or summiting Nepal's highest trekkable peak, Mount Mera, at 6,400 metres or just absorbing the beautiful Gokyo Lakes. It's all available to you, folks. Just give me a call on plus 61 412 982 444. It would be great to walk in that environment with you. Hey, dear people, thank you for joining us. Embrace the journey, hey? Just love the journey of life. And just remember...